This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 82 is John Ryan Huell in Brookline, Massachusetts. On his way to an early morning organic chemistry class one day in the early 1960s, he had a brief, life-transforming religious experience. Having been raised Catholic, he interpreted the event in Christian terms and, after graduation, entered a religious order. There, he encountered Jung's writings and became convinced that there was nothing distinctively Christian about his experience. It was simply human and archetypal. After five years, he left the order and went on to earn a doctorate in religious studies from Temple University. His dissertation was on Jung and Martin Heidegger, titled Imagination and Myth, a Heideggerian Interpretation of C.G. Jung. He then taught in the Department of Philosophy and Religion at Northeastern University for three years, before heading to Switzerland, where he underwent analytic training at the original C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich. Dr. Huell is past president of the New England Society of Jungian Analysts and of the C.G. Jung Institute Boston, and is a former member of the Executive Committee of the International Association for Analytical Psychology. Currently, he is a guest lecturer at the C.G. Jung Institute in Kusnacht, where his most recent lecture, Portraits of Depression, was presented during their 2021 winter block. He is the author of The Love Cure, Therapy Erotic and Sexual, Perils of the Soul, Ancient Wisdom and the New Age, The Ecstasies of St. Francis, The Way of Lady Poverty, Divine Madness, Archetypes of Romantic Love, Jung in the 21st Century, Volume 1, Evolution and Archetype, and Volume 2, Synchronicity and Science, and Tantra and Erotic Trance, Volume 1, Outer Work, and Volume 2, Inner Work. His essay, Jung Comes Back to Himself, Reflections on the Connections Between the Red Book and Gnosticism, was published in Volume 4 of Jung's Red Book for Our Time, Searching for Soul Under Postmodern Conditions. In this episode, the first in a series, we will be focusing on Dr. Huell's early work. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Monday, March 8th, 2021, through the magic of Skype. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Huell. Glad to be here. I'd like to start with your background because this story that I read in the intro about you having a brief life-transforming religious experience is really important to set the scene for what we're going to be talking about today and what I'm going to be covering on this podcast in the months to come. Especially you having been raised Catholic, as I was, and you interpreted the event in Christian terms. So would you pick it up from there? Well, the message was silent. But it was very, very clear. I was walking along a uh, Livernois Avenue in Detroit, passing one uh, used car lot after another. And uh, suddenly I looked up and I felt that I rose up off the sidewalk by about two inches. 
and I kept moving. And, uh, and I suddenly knew that there was something real about the spiritual world. And, uh, it also let me know that I had been uh, barking up the wrong tree in what I was striving for, trying to get, uh, decent grades and, uh, thinking of, uh, of my future in terms of, uh, well, how I might earn a living and so forth. Uh, and feeling very inadequate in all those ways. I've got a the clear indication that that wasn't the important thing. And, uh, further, I it didn't go further than that. It ended. I've continued on to class and, um, kept it in within me for about 50 years before I, I finally, uh, dared to speak of it openly. And, um, I think that's always, always a good, uh, a good thing that for a person, a person who has an, an experience that other people wouldn't understand, right. don't talk about it until you're ready. So that affected you, and you were in college at the time. And yes. after you graduated from college, you you weren't planning on entering a religious order, right? I was planning on going to medical school. Okay. But instead... But I felt like uh, if I go to medical school... I may never pay attention to this experience I've had, and I uh, certainly have no no right to ignore it. Mm-hmm. And so, figure uh, probably what I'm going to be doing is talking uh, to people about um, what's real and what isn't, and uh, what kind of experiences you might have uh, along the course of life, and somehow or other get across from them the. Uh, the urgency of the message that I got, that the spiritual world is real. And was it an isolated incident that you had? Yes, I never had another one like it. Mm. But it was powerful enough to alter the course of your life, really. Yeah, it did. It certainly did. Um, there were, there have been, uh, I'm not willing to go into them, but there sure. have been other experiences where I know it was just, the, that first experience was just hinted at as a reminder of uh, staying on track. You spent five years in kind of a monastery-like setting, right? And then that's right. You decided right. right. So then you decided to enter the doctorate program at Temple, at Temple University. What did you study there? Oh, I studied uh, Jung and uh, philosophy, and um, the professors thought that probably I was too scattered in the things that I was mm-hmm. studying. But I was studying things that I thought related to the uh, uh, the calling I had right. felt that I had, and so I, I I took a wide variety of courses. You mentioned that you found Jung's writings when you were in school. And for your dissertation, you connected Jung and Heidegger. Would you tell us a little bit about the connection between the two? Well, one thing is, uh, starting out, uh, when I was uh, in in the um, monastery-like setting, mm-hmm. um, one of the most important things going on in the uh, Catholic world at that time was that Thomas Aquinas, who was always the philosopher of Catholicism, was being sort of supplanted by existential psychology. And uh, 
the the most prestigious uh, of those figures was uh, Martin Heidegger. And I enjoyed reading Martin Heidegger uh, and felt that he was uh, he was speaking a similar language. And he, he was talking about, particularly in his very famous first book, Being in Time, he was talking about uh, living an authentic life. And that was certainly something that I was uh, interested in doing. And it was what I felt Jung's message to us all has been. You know, to if you live in harmony with yourself, you really are living of the life of uh, you've integrated s- spiritual values and uh, and the uh, ordinary events of your life, and uh, have reached a point of uh, a, a certain amount of certainty in what what you're doing. That uh, it isn't it isn't following rules set down somehow outside mm-hmm. in the world, but they're in rules that make themselves clear internally. Why do you think it's so difficult for us today to live an authentic life? Well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, offhand, I, I, don't have a, uh, I don't have a thesis to tell us about, about that. Do, but, do you think um, it's something that most of us are struggling with? Probably at some level, m- m- many of us are struggling with it, and mm-hmm. um, many probably believe they've given up on it because it's a, it's slowing them down in life. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, it's really hard to know that you're on the right track. Mm-hmm. And I had a me- the, my message certainly was, you're on the wrong track now, but don't worry about it. Uh, we have plans for you. Mm, that was what you were hearing internally that was an internal that was the voice of the a uh, i've never spoken that before mm-hmm. and uh i know it seemed like it was an appropriate thing to say here to make clear yeah. where i stand but uh well yeah. i think a lot of the listeners will totally relate to that and what my question is who is the we you said we have plans for you and and i I and I know a lot of listeners will be able to relate to that, and and I I often wonder who this we is. Yeah, I um, I, I would say that my experience was uh, I encountered a one, not many. Okay. And uh, so, but you know, we is a a sort of neutral term. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it came out of me then, but. Uh, Certainly, um, one is encountering uh, obstacles and encouragements along the, one's course in life all along. And yeah. uh, one could think that these are co- contributions of different, maybe, spiritual figures. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't appear as spiritual figures to me. I haven't had any more experiences like the first one. I want to make sure we finished covering Heidegger, which you wrote an entire thesis about it, and and I spoke about it for a couple minutes there. But... A Heideggerian interpretation of C.G. Jung. Would you tell us a little bit about his interpretation of Jung? Uh, first of all, I don't think he had an interpretation of Jung. I, as far as I know, he didn't know that Jung existed. <laughs> and uh, Jung also had uh, uh, nothing to say about Heidegger that I was aware of. Okay. Uh, at the time that I wrote the dissertation, the first volume of Jung's letters had come out, and I was awaiting the second uh, bond of letters, 
And in the second one, uh, a, a philosophy student wrote to him uh, and spoke of, uh, of Martin Heidegger. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jung basically um, blew it all off and said that, that Heidegger was one of those uh, absurd, crazy uh, philosophers these days who speak nonsense that no one can understand. So um, all that told me was that uh, Jung hadn't read Heidegger the way I had. Mm -hmm. I thought what Heidegger was trying to do was to express things in an existential manner, a manner that had to do with uh, time, for one thing, that we're living in time, that uh, we, uh, where we are now is emerged out of our past, and we're now facing a future. And how we deal with these things is, uh, is the important thing. Are, there are, for example, existential psychologists who work very, very uh, much along the lines of paying attention to the temporality of the person who's studying, who's uh, before them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for example, one finds that people who are depressed, for example, um, very frequently are obsessed with changing the past, something that cannot be done. Uh, you can only change the future. And uh, so there's a, a sense of understanding how people are missing the point in terms of how, how they relate to time and how they relate to the um, encouragements in a way that they're getting in the course of their, of their life mm -hmm. uh, from uh, ordinary events. You wrote a book, uh, which I'd like to get into right now, I, I found it fascinating. It's called The Ecstasies of St. Francis, The Way of Lady Poverty. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you are asking, what was Francis? And you refer to him in the book as Francis, because obviously he wasn't a saint while he was alive. So you, you say it asks, what was Francis doing and how did he do it? And that he became who he was by experimenting with his awareness. And he's such a fascinating figure. And you also bring in the topic of narcissism. So I'd like for you to tell us, first of all, what was the impetus for you even writing this book? Well, first of all, I should tell you that I never had any respect for St. Tom, for St. Uh, Francis. Okay. <laughs> uh, for he always seemed to be, a, he's always presented as a sort of child who was uh, uh, talking to the birds and other animals. And uh, there wasn't anything realistic about him. And if you, if, you, if you saw him in a movie or something like that, he was always a childish figure that you had to love. Um, but there wasn't much substance to them. There wasn't a foundation. And uh, I just happened to come across, uh, I'm a sort of a fan of opera. I came across an opera on, on uh, St. Francis uh, by the, the um, contemporary French composer Olivier Messiaen. And when I listened to the music, by the way, Messiaen is also a, an ornithologist and collects bird song, and uses his bird song in his composing music for, for humans. And um, 
what I heard in his opera was something that was so startling, so conflicted, so and yet so deep and promising in another sense, that I thought, wow, this messian has encountered a different Francis than I know, and I th- I better find out who he is. And so I began looking for uh, interviews with uh, messian uh, hmm. that I could read, and what I found out was that... Uh, there is a big, thick volume of uh, what they call legends, stories that were meant to be read because there weren't that, uh, that many people literate back in the 11th, 12th century. And, um, well, they, uh, the point was that uh, all of these stories gave us a, a picture of a saintly figure. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. There's no other knowledge we have about Francis. So I felt I could really, I could, I could master the life of Francis as presented in these uh, s- stories, biographies, that, were, uh, that came out of nowhere, came out of the people, the people who believed in him uh, back in the... Uh, 12th, 13th centuries. So um, by reading that, I discovered that, first of all, he was a very narcissistic individual. And when I say narcissistic, I mean um, narcissism has to do with having a foundation, a foundation within, what Jung would call a self. Mm -hmm. And um, the narcissist is usually a person who has no confidence internally in himself. and what he strives to do, or she strives to do, is to win the affection of the people around uh, them. Mm-hmm. And if they get praise from the people around them, that's good enough. But it doesn't really satisfy what they're looking for. So this was uh, Francis. He was, uh, his dad was uh, uh, an early uh, uh, member of the mercantile class, uh, making money um, by trading. In, in his case, trading um, fabrics, I believe, primarily. Anyway, he was he was earning a lot of money, and Francis was spending that money to uh, dress himself up in uh, the clothing of knights and uh, pretend that he was a knight, or having big parties uh, with his friends and uh, impress them with all of the uh, fancy wines and uh, and uh, food that he could uh, that he could prevent them all. He was looking for their praise. He was looking for praise everywhere until he began, he somehow, he, he heard a voice from God saying, take care of my church or repair my church or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he began using his father's, uh, um, the money he got from selling his father's um, materials, his, his fabrics, and uh, using it to... Um, fix a, an actual church building. So he listened to the voice. He didn't He listened to the voice in a certain way, but this wasn't it wasn't his it wasn't his money that he was giving oh, to that okay. church and it wasn't the church with a big C. It was a run down uh, little uh, church mm-hmm. and uh, you know building. And uh, and so he got in trouble. Uh, his his um, his father went after him on that and he ran to the bishop to get freedom, to get protection from his father. And uh, eventually, in the process of their negotiation, he said he had wanted to have nothing to do with his father. And uh, he would pay back the, the money that he had stolen from his father. 
And that began his life of uh, begging. And um, how that fit into narcissism was it was humiliating from him for him to beg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can see that he would be doing the very things that exposed that narcissistic core of his being, that the part of him that he was most unhappy with and ashamed of. Um, begging and begging for materials for himself, yes, if he needed anything, but by and large, he didn't need anything. He, he sent gave everything that was given to him to people who whom he perceived as needing a, a jacket or a, a shoes or whatever it was. Did he do that for himself because he wanted to be kind of the hero by providing people who were needy with things? I mean, I'm just trying to understand why he would do that, why somebody as narcissistic as, as Francis was would want to help other people. Well, he developed the thing that was remarkable about him was that he established a relationship with his narcissism. Mm. He took it that every time he had a narcissistic impulse, for example, it came into him the kind of thing that happened right at the beginning of his begging life. He goes into a he goes to an establishment, a a house, maybe a small castle. I don't know what it was. Uh, that he, where he thought he would uh, beg some money that he could give to the poor. and But as he got close to the building, he saw there were uh, people about his own age milling about. And uh, he had to get, get by them, and they wanted an explanation of what he was doing. So he had to tell them that he was going to, the, to beg from the people in the house. And, uh, of course, they all laughed at him, and he, he felt terrible about it. He started walking away, having given up the project, and then he said, no, he has to do it. And what he discovered was when he did the thing he knew was the right thing to do, the, especially the, uh, the thing that humiliated him, if he could propel himself through that incident uh, as calmly as possible, even though he was dying in the, in the, in the process of it, what happened was he entered, he changed his consciousness and he began to live in the world that he knew from the, from the New Testament, where we find uh, Jesus everywhere he's going, he's preaching to the people that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are living now in the world that is potentially the kingdom of heaven. We just have to open our eyes and see it and live in it. So Francis felt he was living in the uh, the kingdom of heaven, the very thing that he was uh, meant to do as a Christian and that he never figured out how to do. So moving into humiliation was always the way that he saw forward into a um, a clarity, a uh, a feeling of uh, of triumph, and not a triumph that he did, but rather much more a triumph that. Uh, Christ was doing through him as he began, as he worked at uh, uh, begging clothing, food, and money to give to the poor. So he just sort of realized these things naturally, or was he being guided in some way? I don't think there's any evidence that uh, someone was guiding him to this Mm. particular practice. Actually, the Catholic Church was horrified. Um, by the uh, the process, but he knew that this this really was a, a spiritual life. This was 
this, and he he knew that he was called to live it. So you might say he must have had an experience not unlike the one that I had right. that said that told me that there was a way I could go forward that was uh, uh, that was going to accomplish something on another plane. And uh, so that was uh, that was what he was doing there, and I and he. He had the reward of of having succeeded. He had the reward of having stepped out of this petty world into the the spiritual world that Christ was preaching. And just to give the listeners who are not familiar with his life a little bit of perspective, he lived from the years one thousand one hundred eighty six. 1186 to 1226. So he only lived for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he destroyed his health uh, by, he referred to his body as a brother ass. Brother and, ass. Uh, brother ass. And so all kinds of punishments could be dealt to brother ass. And uh, he felt that that was a spiritual way to go. By the end of his, and there, there, that was not an unusual thing for saints mm-hmm. in the history of uh, Catholicism to to believe and to, in the end, have really ruined their health and die and die young. Uh, so this is, you know, this was definitely um, definitely true of Francis. He by well before the end of his life, though, he realized that he was shortening his life by. Uh, the way he was giving himself um, penances and uh, and trying to uh, tame his bu- his brother ass, whom he thought was simply interested in uh, following his uh, impulses, and uh, and so he he probably knows him better, himself better than we do. Probably he was, but um, by the end he realized that he should have. He re- brother ass was the only way that he could carry on doing his work. And he had uh, undermined Brother Ass's life by giving him too much penance, I guess we could say. The subtitle of the book is The Way of Lady Poverty. So what was his relationship with Lady Poverty? Who was she? Well, she was his image of the person that, uh, that understood his, uh, his life, who understood what he was doing with his... Um, his begging. He would he would get up in the middle uh, in the middle of something that was going on. He would get up and go out and uh, and beg for a while because he felt like he needed the spiritual nourishment he got from begging. And uh, and I would say therefore she's the embodiment of the spiritual nourishment that he got from begging. Mm-hmm. There was a um, an almost what you could call an eros an an erotic quality to it. That is to say. A, a, he was drawn to her in a very powerful way. She wasn't the uh, the uh, pseudonym for a uh, a real woman. He was she was uh, the personification of his aspirations, you might say. And in the famous painting in uh, a church that was uh, built and dedicated precisely to Saint uh, Francis, mm-hmm. uh, there is a picture of him being wed to um, Lady Poverty. And if you look at the cover of the book that uh, was published, the, my book on uh, St. Francis, yes. you see that, that it is that very painting mm-hmm. uh, on the cover. 
the, the, the wedding between Francis and Lady Poverty. And I will have that book cover on the episode page for this episode, episode 82, on the speakingofyoung.com website. You can see the book cover there. So when you say that he became who he was by experimenting with his awareness, he also would, it resulted in him learning several techniques for entering ecstatic states of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot more going on with him and his stigmata. So what were these ecstatic states of consciousness that he experienced? I would say that that, that uh, idea of go, going into his shame mm-hmm. in order to uh, enter the, the, uh, the world of, uh, that is the kingdom of heaven on earth, um, that was certainly everything he did then that along those lines um, was follow whatever you said there the the, uh, the ecstatic states the, the ecstatic phrase yes and so he did that he it would he when he would beg food he would in the beginning he did it all himself but eventually he had followers he had lots of followers why what were people drawn to there was something about him. And his connectedness to the world and to people that uh, was um, that spoke volumes, I guess, uh, for who he was. And so he would, and he, and so the people who were following him were, asked, were aspiring to live the kind of life he lived. Mm-hmm. And he realized that they could only do that if they really experimented with it. So he would send, for example, some of his sent people. To uh, into to a town as they're walking along the roads of uh, northern Italy, um, they may have stopped at a certain place, and he may have chosen two or three people to go into that town and beg some food for them. And he would choose those people uh, precisely in a way that they could strengthen their faith. He wouldn't let them do it until they he was convinced that they were um, founded deeply enough in what Jung would call their self. And uh, so that they could go ahead and, and face up to the humiliation that inevitably they would feel as they uh, begged food for uh, their leader. And uh, another kind of th- another thing he would do was as they were walking along, he would tell he would ask one person after another to speak to not to speak something that he had prepared previously, but to speak spontaneously what he was moved to say. Actually, as it were, what the Holy Spirit wanted to speak through him. Mm. And uh, as you can imagine, you can, only, uh, you can only do that if you're doing something that's truly authentic. He had an ear for hearing that. And as soon as the, uh, the follower got to the point of, uh, of speaking spontaneously, he'd say, okay, that's enough, and gave, and gave the... Um, the nod to another of his followers to try to uh, do the same. And and so it, it was, um, the whole point of it was, there's no point in preaching unless you have, unless the spirit has something to say through you. And so that if he were invited to speak at a certain gathering, if words didn't come to him, he wouldn't say a word. He would just stand there in his uh, shame at not being able to come up with something. Mm. So now, 
I mentioned ecstatic states of consciousness, and I guess uh, what I was really getting at are in chapter six, you talk about his powers, predicting the future, reading the secrets of others' hearts, bilocations, exorcisms, and other external battles with the devil, astounding and sudden healings, and a peculiar power over animals. So where did all of yeah. that come from? It came from those um, uh, legends of St. Francis that I spoke of earlier. A big, fat book. And yeah, would you say that those are all true, that they actually happened? Um, what I would say about them is that they are really the truth of what people believed about Francis. Mm -hmm. And I say that in the book. I don't say in the book, this, these are the things that Francis, the historical Francis did. I said, the only Francis we have is the Francis of legend. Right. In fact, the situation is pretty much the same as Jesus. We don't have anything about Jesus except what people remembered about him. And those, those are the, the Gospels and uh, the other parts of the New Testament. So now, as a psychologist, how do you look at this? I'm, I'm curious because this is something that has fascinated me my whole life. As I said, I was raised Catholic as well, and I've always had a deep interest in saints. And I've been to Rome and the Vatican and Chimayo in New Mexico. And I often wonder, something else I wanted to mention is the stigmata. So from what I understand, it's very rare to see St. Francis, either in paintings or in statues, depicted with the stigmata. And there is a very large cathedral in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where before lockdown, I used to visit um, several times a year for many, many years. And there is a gigantic, bigger than life size statue of St. Francis of Assisi outside uh, on the side of this cathedral with his palms turned upward, depicting the stigmata. So I've always been very curious from a psychological perspective, is this real? And then that opens a whole other can of worms is what is real. Mm -hmm. but would you tell us something about that phenomenon? Well, I'll tell you this, that I did, I read some uh, material on, uh, I, I, I searched the library for material on whether something like that is possible. And I kind of came to the conclusion that uh, uh, there are a variety of views on the thing, but that it's probably possible under the right circumstances. Mm -hmm. And uh, the right circumstances, uh, he, I think he was one of the first to uh, bear the stigmata. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are people... Um, it's pretty much limited to Catholics, but not entirely, um, to um, to develop the bleeding, uh, an identification with Christ, I guess. Yeah, so that was, uh, uh, and um, he, he, my impression was that the stories depicted him uh, primarily uh, trying not to show off, not not uh, not showing his his stigmata to the people that that might want to follow him or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, I don't know if I can say more about the stigmata part of it, uh, except that it, it seems as though for some people it does happen. Mm -hmm. And um, you could imagine that 
the, the psyche is powerful enough to do lots of things. Right. Another topic in the book, in Chapter 6, you talk about, in India, these perfect powers called cities. How does that factor in to the story? Well, the fact factors in because um, you, we might call the uh, powers that Francis has in terms of uh, influencing people, in terms of uh, manif- manif- manifesting his own state of uh, being and uh, all of these things that, and, you know, even communicating with animals. Mm-hmm. I can easily believe communicating with animals was a, a, a trait of his because it is possible to communicate with animals. Right. And, uh, and I think... We're, I think people are getting to know that more and more. I've seen more and more documentaries, for example, with people who uh, have learned how to communicate with horses or with uh, bears or uh, various kinds of animals. Uh, and uh, it, they, one discovers a certain comradeship or uh, fellow, fellow creature quality between the, uh, the human and the, uh, and the animal. Anyway, the cities are special powers that are given, and they and it's it is generally said that if you're on the spiritual path, there will come a time when you can you begin to manifest cities, these special powers, mm-hmm. and um, and this is you to weigh your last test, because it's all, people become so impressed with the cities that they uh, that they just want to manifest the cities or. Right see them manifested before them and if you do that you've lost the, you've lost your way along the path you have to you have to set them aside for the listeners who are not familiar with the term it's spelled s i d d h i s for plural and they include occult powers uh, mind reading clairvoyance materialization levitation making things invisible and actually entering other bodies. And so you're saying that with spiritual practice, deep spiritual practice, they come naturally, eventually. That's what I understand. Yeah. yeah I, can't, uh, I can't tell you that I've had cities and uh, know exactly what they're talking about, but uh, there's a pretty um, consistent story told by Hindus and, and, other, and others um, that, that the cities are real and uh, there are not something so much to be sought for as mm-hmm. to be uh, strong, strong enough not to be dis, um, misled by. In other words, if I begin to, if I try to show them that I'm more powerful than you because I can um, do one of the, perform one of these cities, I've, I've lost my way. I'm now, I'm now into narcissism, you might say, mm-hmm. uh, manifesting, trying to, trying to win friends by impressing them with my powers. Right. And St. Francis, or Francis, I should say, he didn't do that, which I'm, I'm trying to understand. So you say that the central discovery that he made was that the very tender narcissistic sector of his psyche held the secret. And so when he started developing these things, he wasn't saying, look at me, look at me, which a a narcissistic individual would do. No, he wasn't. Um, 
what I'd like to say here is that uh, the secret behind my writing the book about St. Francis is St. Francis seems to have learned uh, a, a very important les- lesson based in uh, the experience of narcissism. And so, in a way, to find out that someone can live with narcissism and live with it creatively mm. and live it transformatively, yeah. that's really something. Because for the most part, psychologists talk about uh, narcissism as one of the most difficult traits to overcome. And nobody wants to be narcissistic. Almost everybody is narcissistic, at least at one time or another. And uh, so to... Uh, to find out the humility that was brought on by uh, Francis's uh, the shame before demonstrating his begging powers, you might say, um, he didn't. He got no positive feedback from that, except that he was able to take uh, clothing and food and money uh, to that to from wealthy people to poor people, mm-hmm. and uh, and. Uh, help them with their in their poverty but um so this was the first case i had ever seen of someone living their narcissism in a creative way in a transformative way so that that was the really the thing that i was really interested in but i just told the story i let you draw draw your own conclusions Mm -hmm. about what you think about Mm -hmm. uh, francis and what he was doing And you said, by standing firm in this emotional tumult, he discovered a portal onto an alternate universe, which he saw as the kingdom of God that Jesus of Nazareth had come to preach. Uh, I mean, that describes pretty well what what I was trying to do, what I saw in him. And, um, you know, I uh, I didn't run that by any Franciscans. Uh, I had no idea whether there'd be any um, response from the Franciscan community. And uh, it turns out there was at least one. Uh, there's um, the, um, my, I guess my publishers must have shown parts of the text to uh, uh, a number of people. And uh, a couple of people came through with a little blurb for the back cover of the book. Um, one from a fairly well-known uh, Franciscan uh, who said that he thought he'd seen all the th- the um, um, biographies of Francis that could ever exist. And then uh, along comes another one that was truly original, namely mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I mean, I feel like I'm onto something. I'm onto something that was true about St. Francis and something that's true about us all if we only dare to face up to it. Mm. And how do we do that? By paying attention to our inner life? By paying attention to our inner life, by uh, we might notice what happens when you're the ne- next time you're in a uh, position of shame, in terms of how you can handle it. Um, there's a lot that goes on there, and I I would I think that he got his that Francis got his followers in the beginning by teaching them his method and coaching them in his method, and you know making sure he was aware of how much damage you could do to yourself if you were to take this kind of thing on without guidance. Mm -hmm. So he was very careful to guide his people. But the number, so the the number of people following him, you know, could be counted in the dozens. But by the time 
by the, near the end of his life, the number of people calling them Franciscans was uh, had to be count. They were counted in the tens of thousands, probably many, many, many more than that. And um, the church was worried about people trying to do what Francis was doing and not having the wherewithal. So they they um, they painted a uh, a typical picture of a Christian saint for Saint Francis and sold that to the public. Mm. And that's and so by the end of his life, Francis was very very upset with the church. He thought he had a deal with God and with the Pope, not the Pope that was no longer Pope by the time by the end of his life, mm-hmm. but. Um, he thought he had a deal with uh, worked out with all these people, and they would allow allow him what he he only had one thing he thought to leave the world, and that thing was his spiritual practice, the spiritual practice of using um, narcissism to uh, uh, his own narcissism to tr- go through a transformation. So it was a uh, he that was his last. Um, uh, Trial, I suppose you could say, just before he died, and uh, it was a it was a, ma- a big one because he knew that there was something in his his method. It was it was a real method that really was could be entirely satisfying to himself and would in fact transform the world if there were a lot of people uh, living that. And the ch- the church had to give give him a more uh, uh, standard biography. That's why those uh, those le- legends of Saint Francis are so important. That's what the people believed about him. The legends, as opposed to kind of the cartoonish figure that he's depicted as, with mm-hmm. yeah, the cartoonish figure that uh, uh, made me always hate him, and uh, yeah, with the birds and talking to the animals and yeah. Well, I have nothing against talking to the birds. Or any other animal, mm-hmm. um, you know. They, I think that's. I animals like to be talked to. Yeah. Uh, really, I mean, try it. You find out if you talk to animals with a uh, calm, reassuring voice, they'll stop and listen. Well, I think with the introduction to movies and TV shows like The Horse Whisperer and The Dog Whisperer. And mm-hmm. as you were mentioning in the in the beginning of the, our talk here today, that it's becoming more normalized. But before we wrap up, I would like to bring in Jung, and you do cover that a little bit in the book about Jung's breakup with Freud, opening up his narcissistic wound. How do you tie in Jung? Because you you wrote this book from a Jungian perspective. And you mentioned that St. Francis seems to have learned pretty much the same lesson that Jung did. Well, I don't know if I would have said that at that time, at the time I wrote it. but uh, In the book you say, after breaking with Freud, Jung found that his psyche pulled itself back together again with renewed direction and greater creativity. Out of this experience, he developed his theory of the self as the psyche's mm-hmm. ultimate principle of organization. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right, and that's, that is the case. Um, the, the, he had a really hard time uh, at the, after breaking up with Freud. Mm-hmm. And um, he, uh, there are m- lots of stories about him. Uh, for example, um, playing... Uh, 
um, Indians and Englishmen with his uh, nephews and his son and his nephews uh, and his, uh, on the grounds of his uh, mother-in-law's uh, mansion. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he, and really doing really foolish things. He, he was a, a man in his uh, 30s and uh, he was taking he was risking the lives of those kids. Uh, try, um, trying to um, burn down one another's tents and uh, uh, <laughs> all kinds of really uh, crazy stuff that his, his, his uh, mother-in-law had to step in and stop. So that was where he started from, and then he, but he went off. He, he began to pay more and more attention to what his unconscious was saying, and that led to the Red Book. The red book is the is the work that he started to that he began doing after the split with Freud, mm-hmm. in, in order to find out what his his unconscious really wanted of him. So having figured that, and that's it was by the by that means he began to understand he began to develop a language to talk about it. So the language of of a self uh, was very important. That, where self is our wholeness, and uh, we can never know ourself completely because it's, it's our wholeness, and we're just an ego. Um, but the point is that you you can be you can develop more and more a sense of knowing what yourself wants of you uh, if you pay attention, if you listen to your dreams, if you pay attention to the reactions you have in everyday life. And I'm thinking when I say that, I'm thinking of those narcissistic moments when we feel like we've embarrassed ourselves right. or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of those things. Uh, Jung, Jung was, uh, he thought he, I don't know what he ha- had expected to have happen when he went, when he began working on the Red Book. But the thing is that most of the experiences he had were humiliating. His, his, it was as though his soul was out to... Uh, to make him his life miserable, mm-hmm. and um, uh, clearly there was something there. I suppose you could say that was close to what uh, uh, Francis had to put up with. Mm-hmm. He had he had to realize that his his narcissistic reaction to things was his burden and also his uh, his his ticket to um, a new kind of sanity. There's one more thing I'd like to mention before we wrap up. There is a great passage or few sentences, paragraph in chapter three that I would like to read because I and a a lot of uh, people who saw my posts on social media would like to thank you for this. You say, Jung held that integration and psychological growth occur when life presents one with a challenging obstacle that splits one's consciousness so that one does not know whether to go forward or back, right or left. Both alternatives have their advantages, and both their drawbacks. There being no rational solution to the problem, Jung found that if one can hold the tension between the opposites, an irrational solution will finally appear, directed from the unconscious by the mysterious agency he termed the transcendent function, holding still while not denying either alternative 
appears to stimulate the unconscious psyche to come up with a solution that emerges from out of nowhere, from the unconscious. That is the best explanation of that process I've ever heard because for so many years in analysis, my analyst and I would talk about holding the tension between the opposites and I would swear and get angry and like, what does this mean? I don't understand. Thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you for reading it. <laughs> Did you? It was, uh, it was most impressive. Yes. I, I sat here listening to it, wishing that I'd said that. <laughs> so yes, everyone, in chapter three, the book is titled The Ecstasies of St. Francis, The Way of Lady Poverty. And I thank you for sharing your insights with us today, Dr. Huell, and look forward to speaking with you again soon, because I would like next time for us to cover your book, Perils of the Soul, Ancient Wisdom and the New Age. All right. I hope we do it. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G, dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and now on Amazon Music. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungi and Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device, simply by saying, Alexa, play speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. Links to Amazon's new Echo devices can be found in the show notes. So with special thanks to the Taylor and Francis Group and to Fisher King Press, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs>